Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today I'm excited to be joined in person by Pastor Dave Lindbergh. So, Dave, good to have you here. Thank you, Scott. It's, it's, it's a privilege. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, today we're going to be talking about Presbyterianism, uh, because, uh, like many of you, I want to know more about what it's like to be a Presbyterian, and uh, Pastor Dave's going to share a little bit of that with us. So, I wanted to begin by just asking you, uh, what's some of the history of the Presbyterian denomination? Just sort of a, a 50-foot overview, if you will, not uh, necessarily all the minutia, but... Yeah, well, that <laughs> wise. Uh, yeah, history of the Presbyterian Church um, really dates back, uh, not surprisingly, to the Reformation, uh, and particularly to John Calvin and Geneva, and through Calvin, John Knox, the Scottish Reformers, uh, the Westminster Assembly and the formation of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. And through the Scottish Reformation, it comes to the United States, uh, you know, before the Revolutionary War and so on and so forth. And then since then, uh, kind of as you indicated, there's a lot of splintering and various branches thereof. But that's really big overview picture. Yeah, there. very good. Um, interesting. I was when I was in Scotland. I visited John Knox's house and his church, which I don't think he would be very happy with the way his church is uh, in Scotland now. But one of the things I found really interesting was that across the street from John Knox's home was a statue of David Hume, and I thought you can't have two more juxtaposed people within the you know this the, you know the most well known atheist in Scotland versus the uh, Protestant reformer of Scotland yeah uh, right there beside each other but at so, at the same time that actually kind of indicates a lot of the the intellectualism of presbyterianism and its in its ability and willingness to engage broader cultural questions and intellectual issues and so at some level that kind of those are debates that were going on then and debates that are going on now. And, and you know, it's not just Presbyterians, but all of us are mm -hmm. kind of engaged in those things. So, Yeah, no, I think that's very good. Um, obviously, I think the, the Presbyterians uh, have done a very good job of contributing to the knowledge of Christianity. Uh, there's a lot of great reformers and Presbyterian theologians and leaders who've uh, given us uh, really just a, a plethora of resources to better understand Scripture, to better understand how to live the Christian life. Um, with that being said, what are some of the things that drew you to the Presbyterian denomination? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I'll try to keep that short. So I uh, like a lot, so I'm, I'm part of the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, which is one of the more um, theologically and culturally conservative or orthodox with a little O, if you will, branches of Presbyterianism in, in America. Um, and like a lot of guys in that denomination, I grew up Baptist um, and came to a Presbyterian conviction um, of, the, you know, baptism and even just more broadly kind of just the doctrines of grace and an understanding of salvation from more of a Reformed, Calvinistic, and particularly Presbyterian perspective uh, while I was in college. I got uh, really heavily involved in Reformed University Fellowship, which is the campus ministry wing of the PCA, uh, where we put an ordained campus minister on staff to not only minister to Presbyterian students that are coming from PCA churches, but to kind of catalyze them 
to be a movement on that campus of evangelism and uh, apologetics and discipleship. So uh, it was through that that I um, became Presbyterian. I was kind of already on that trajectory. I'd been influenced by a lot of Presbyterian um, folks in my in my high school years through teachers at the the private school I was a part of. Um, so it was really through hearing the the doctrines of grace particularly and the idea that God not only saves us uh, through his own initiative and through his own undeserved love and mercy but that not only does that lead to our justification but we're adopted and then we're sanctified by grace we will have we have the hope of eternal glorification by grace and that it's nothing that we do in and of ourselves to earn that uh, or and there's nothing we can do to lose it in the sense that once God has gripped us by his love he will not let us go and so that's just kind of classic uh, Calvinism although I think that the the two are not necessarily synonymous and there's just different ways in which Presbyterians um, flesh that out uh, in, in practical ways in, in kind of day-to-day -day living of the Christian life yeah very good uh, so obviously you know with with, with Presbyterianism sort of forming based on a lot of the teachings of John Calvin, um, it would make sense that Presbyterians would be uh, reformed in nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and a big part of that, of course, is um, what you've mentioned about uh, God's unmerited favor and God's grace, and also this idea of uh, what's typically known as perseverance of the saints, this idea you can't lose your salvation. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the other major doctrines of the Presbyterian church that would sort of be, I guess, defining doctrinal characteristics of the denomination. Yeah, well, one, I just, I love it when we, we talk about perseverance of the saints. And I, you know, one of the ways I think that we can kind of misunderstand that is perseverance almost makes it seem like it's our strength and our ability that allows us to keep going. And I think it's actually really helpful to think about it in terms of the preservation of the saints. Mm -hmm. that God himself, by his grace, through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, is preserving us. You know, one of the classic texts are those warning passages in Hebrews that seem to indicate the possibility of falling away or backsliding, as it was when I was growing up. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but I, I really think if we understand that from a Reformed and Presbyterian perspective, it's those warnings that are actually divine grace causing us to reflect upon our own hearts and our own lives and and the ways in which we are or aren't living that out faithfully and it's through those warnings that god actually is preserving us and is um he's the one that's demonstrating his steadfast love and faithfulness even when we are unfaithful and constantly bringing us back to himself and and i think you know that just kind of is a a, a really good kind of segue into one of the probably primary um, distinctives of Reformed Presbyterian, Presbyterians is sola scriptura. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, that scripture alone uh, is the rule of faith and practice, that scripture is what guides not only what we believe, uh, but you know, ultimately kind of how we're supposed to believe it and how we're supposed to live it out. Now, some Presbyterians can get way too bogged down in the details of that and they can kind of confuse cultural preferences with uh, scriptural um, practice and so forth. But I think ultimately Presbyterians, if they're being 
quote unquote good Presbyterians are going to always go back to scripture, always going to go back to that norm that norms everything else. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got, you know, obviously you've got your kind of reformed doctrines of grace. You've got your solas, sola scriptura, um, solus Christus, this idea that it's in Christ alone that we're saved, uh, that it's by grace alone, through faith alone. Um, and those are all, you know, those are all distinctives within the uh, Presbyterian and Reformed world, but I don't think we're, we don't have like the full ownership of that. I think mm -hmm. you see those expressed in other branches of uh, Protestantism, and that's something to celebrate. It's one of the things that I think actually unites us. Mm -hmm. um, some other kind of just very um, specific distinctives that I think are good to, under good to know about and good to understand would probably be uh, first of all, Presbyterianism is an ecclesiastical or a doctrine of the church mm -hmm. um, way of, of talking about how the church is governed. And so the, the church is governed by uh, pastors and elders uh, who have spiritual oversight of the congregation that God has put underneath them. And it's it's important, especially within you know Presbyterianism in, in the U.S. and the 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 way the PCA has kind of fleshed that out. Um, we have spiritual authority. Uh, we can't bind people's consciences, but we can declare the truth, and we can hold people accountable for what the what the scriptures say. But we only have this kind of ecclesiastical authority. Um, but we don't hold that in and of ourselves. It's a mm -hmm. it's and this is one of the things I love about Presbyterianism, is there are um, safeguards. They're not always used or utilized the way they ought to be. But, you know, the pastor isn't the bishop of that congregation. Um, and the elders that are with him aren't just yes men doing whatever he says and kind of protecting the institute or the institution. They have, they, they're subject to each other. Mm -hmm. They're subject to the other pastors and elders within what we call the presbytery, uh, which is the regional church. And then even those, that body or that court, however you want to think about it, mm -hmm. is is subject to the general assembly, which is the national, um, the national body that's made up of all of the teaching elders or pastors, and then they have different representative uh, ruling elders, is what we call them, from each of the congregations that goes to that, and that's that's where we, you know, we do a lot of really good church work, um, mm -hmm. you know, good practical, just kind of wrestling with. Uh, the truths of scripture and the ways in which to live that out faithfully and winsomely and graciously uh, within our own time and space in history. Um, but that also is where we, you know, a lot of our differences get fleshed out and we have to learn what it means to uh, be forbearing with each other, to be patient with each other, to assume the best of each other, but at the same time have robust uh, difficult conversations to think through how are we doing this in a way that honors Christ, honors the dignity of those that we're seeking to pastor, and has a heart toward how we're embodying the gospel in a way that that is attractive and compelling to an unbelieving world around us. Um, so that's, I mean, that's, there are others that probably could have said that a lot better than me, but that's uh, a good kind of overview of kind of how we structure things. Mm -hmm. I think the two things that for most um, American evangelicals, um, you know, like myself that just kind of grew up probably broadly um, Baptistic in some, capa in some capacity, uh, the things that are probably the, the biggest sticklers or difficult things to kind of 
um, wrap our hearts and minds around would be our view of the sacraments, uh, particularly baptism, mm -hmm. where we uh, we do baptize infants um, and we see them as by virtue of being born to a believing parent or believing parents, uh, we see them as uh, born into membership in the visible church. And I think that's where it's, it's, it's important to understand that we're saying they're born into the visible church, which is the visible uh, expression, not only of Christ's kingdom, but of the, the new covenant that he has made with the church in which he's promised, like he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel, that I will be your God and you will be my people. Uh, and we see similar language to the, the calling of Abraham and the promises given to Abraham surrounding circumcision given um, by Peter to the church at the, on the day of Pentecost. He says, you know, they, they hear this robust expository sermon on, uh, you see how I snuck that in there? Yes, yes, this good. robust <laughs> uh, expository sermon on the person and work of Jesus and what God has done in him in these last days, and all of these Israelites from all over the, the Roman Empire are gathered there, and they're hearing each other speak in their own languages, and they hear this sermon, and their response is, what do we do with this? Mm -hmm. And and Peter says, uh, believe in the, you know, believe and and repent and be baptized. And he says, this is for you and for your children and those who are far off. And and so the way Presbyterians have understood that since the Reformation and looking back at the, the history of the church and the instinct that the church had um, from its earliest days, as far as we know, to baptize infants is in the new covenant, things are expanding. They're not shrinking. And so mm -hmm. if the sign of the covenant went to um, the, the male children of Israelites, and this was a way of kind of physically representing the fact that God, Yahweh was their God and they were his people. Well, we know from you know, places like Joel uh, that, that the covenant is expanding, that men and women are prophesying. Um, and, and so the way we look at it is now the sign of the covenant, baptism, is going to go to all of our children, male and female. And it's a way in which we're passing on the faith and it's a way in which we're passing on the covenant promises not with the assumption that every child we baptize is regenerate, but with that hope and with that anticipation and that expectation. Uh, you know, it's not something we presume, we assume it, but we don't presume it. And so we train those children to know and to love the Lord and to actually look to their baptism as God's first act of gracious initiation in their lives to pursue them and say, you're my child. And, and we, we pray and we long to see them lay hold of that faith and see their baptism come, come to fruition in their own um, acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord and Savior uh, and their acknowledgement of their sin and their need uh, for divine grace, both now and for eternity. Um, again, that's just kind of trying not to get too bogged down in that. But we see you know, all sorts of places within the New Testament where there's a link drawn between circumcision and baptism. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's one thing that I think, you know, that was a stickler for me. Um, sure. I, uh, I, I had the opportunity to study on, under a, a Lutheran Reformation 
uh, scholar when I was in my undergrad, and so I was able to actually take an entire semester to dig into the doctrine of baptism and and really wrestle with what I thought about that. And that was when I that was when some of the the switches kind of got flipped, and I ended up going that direction. A um, little less controversial, I think, within American um, evangelicalism and Protestantism would be our view of, of uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, again, we kind of come at that from a very covenantal perspective, seeing a lot of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not to say that there isn't some discontinuity, um, but seeing a lot of continuity and seeing it be the whole story, you know, the one story focused on the person and work of Jesus, uh, we see links between, um, you know, the Passover uh, and the Lord's Supper, that there was this meal that uh, commemorated and really kind of uh, brought back to life through repetition the, the Exodus story. We see the Lord's Supper as being similar. And interestingly enough, Jesus refers to his death uh, and resurrection. I think the whole of what happens mm -hmm. there, he refers to it in Luke 9 as his Exodus. Uh, and interestingly enough, on the night he's betrayed, he institutes this meal not just to remember his death until he comes. I think it's important to say that it's it's not less than that, mm -hmm. but I think it's more than just a memorial, and Presbyterians would say it's more than just a memorial. We're not just remembering that Jesus died for us, but um, following Calvin, uh, we would say that, well, Jesus is not physically present in the bread and the wine, uh, in the transubstantiation way that Roman Catholicism uh, has historically taught it, and and not sure. in the way, not transub, uh, consubstantiation like Lutherans would say, where Jesus is in and around and and underneath the the elements. Yeah, sort of um, the spiritual presence. In yeah, the elements. yeah. We we would say that actually Jesus is present in the bread and the wine through the through the mystery of the Holy Spirit. The the bread and the wine remain bread and wine, but. By faith, we really are and truly are feeding on Jesus such that not only are we remembering Christ's death, not only are we proclaiming his death until he comes, but we're actually being um, filled with divine grace in the person and work of Jesus as we eat the bread and, and, and drink the cup. And I think in some respects, we, we, you almost have to get there at some level if you're reading John 6, and taking what Jesus says as seriously as the crowds were, where he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you, you, you don't have participation in me. Mm -hmm. and, and it's interesting that a lot of the crowds took him very seriously and stopped following him at that point. And I think Calvin was helpful in helping us understand that there's a way in which Jesus can be spiritually present through the work of the Holy Spirit without a bunch of magic Mm -hmm. and irrational things happening with the elements. And yeah. and so, you know, we call those means of grace mm -hmm. uh, because we really believe that God is giving us grace um, as we participate in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, and, and, you know, just to ex expand on that, we would say that prayer is also a means of grace, that it's mm -hmm. a way in which we are um, able to communicate with God and God is communicating with us. And we really are experiencing in tangible ways that intimate union and communion that we have not only with Christ, but with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, very good. Um, so sort of just to kind of recap a little bit, um, it, it, it seems like you're saying that 
the Presbyterian denomination sort of views um, baptism as a replacement or sort of the new way of doing circumcision uh, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And that when a child is baptized, you're not saying this is their salvation, but rather you're saying they, they're going to be growing up in the church as part of the church to make the faith their own when they become of age to be able to make that decision. Yeah, I, yeah, and, and whatever that age may be, it happens mm -hmm. at different times. I mean, I've known young children who have acknowledged uh, the, the, the reality of what their baptism points to. And if I can kind of simplify it in the, mm -hmm. most, in the most simple way, I would say baptism is not about my profession of faith. It's not, a, it's not a ritual that is kind of demonstrating the fact that I believe Mm -hmm. From a Presbyterian perspective, baptism actually points to what God has done and is promising to do uh, through the proclamation of the gospel in the local and universal church. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've known little kids that have experienced that, and I've known adults who were raised um, in a Christian home of some capacity, were baptized, and never believed it. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, in many respects... I can think of one person in particular very much disbelieved it and did not live mm -hmm. according to the gospel, um, and yet later in life came to faith. And and for me as a pastor, those are those like those are really special moments to say, see how God has been pursuing you even in your sin your entire life, and it and His promises are now coming to fruition now at. 18, 20, 30, 40, whatever it mm -hmm. is, and you're laying hold of the promise of the gospel that has been given to you and even put upon you in the waters of baptism since infancy. What a great God we serve and what a yeah. gracious God. I think that's a good way to look at it. I mean, uh, you know, Baptists oftentimes look at the, you know, because we um, believe in baptizing after profession, mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of this idea of saying, hey, I'm conscientiously aware of you know my belief in Christ now and and you know what what that entails and I'm uh, willing to share that with the congregation and whatnot. Um, but um, I think there's definitely something to the idea of uh, seeing baptism as coming from God and not necessarily pointing to us, but pointing to Him and His goodness. Yeah, uh, and I think that's true. And we you know this is the thing that sometimes people forget, even Presbyterians, we also practice credo baptism, where there are baptisms on profession of faith. Mm -hmm. um, and even in that, it's not that it's a celebration of my faith. It's a celebration of divine grace and divine initiative and what God has done to save not only that individual, but to save his people. And so mm -hmm. there's a very corporate understanding of it. Yeah. Um, and I think practically, because, you know, this is all like heady theology, and I that drives me nuts about Presbyterians at times. I think it's brass tacks. It's it's pastoral, mm -hmm. um, and some of this is anecdotal and experiential. But you know, I was baptized twice mm -hmm. growing up. Baptist, Baptist once when I was uh, four on profession of faith, and then again in uh, late middle school, early high school. I don't really remember which one. And part of that was because I had gone through this anxious like sense of, well, did I really believe when I was four? Mm -hmm. um, well, at some level, 
that can just kind of perpetuate throughout life because sure. we all go through these moments of recognizing that our faith is very weak. Um, and sometimes our doubts feel so much stronger or our sense of guilt and shame, um, sometimes legitimately and sometimes illegitimately, just feels so much stronger than whatever that feeling of faith is. And that can mm -hmm. lead to a lot of anxiety. Like, well, did I really believe last time? And so was my baptism really... A fit, you know, sufficient, yeah. and and so on and so forth, and that I think pastorally, one of the beauties of infant baptism is to relieve you of that anxiety and to say, when you're having those moments of doubt, and when you're having those moments of conviction, when you're having those moments of recognizing your own weakness and brokenness, don't look to yourself, don't look to your feelings. Don't look to your subjective experience, but look to Jesus mm -hmm. and what he has accomplished in his incarnation, in his life, his death, his resurrection, in his ascension and rule and reign over all things, and cling to him. Yeah. Um, and that, to me, that just eliminates uh, some of the doubting and mm -hmm. can actually stir us on to more confidence in God as our Savior and more desire to see others experience that goodness. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. And uh, I don't know, uh, you know, again, being in the Baptist church, I've sat down front and had people come to me and say, I'm not sure I'm really saved. And, uh, uh, you know, typically one of the things I'll ask is, well, you know, I mean, especially if it's someone who's, you know, uh, been in the church for 10 or 20 years or, or whatever. And uh, uh, I'll say, well, what's making you doubt right now? What What's causing this doubt? And I'll also ask questions like, well, do you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit? And mm -hmm. How do you define your current relationship with the Lord? And I think a lot of times what we end up discovering is that they are saved, mm -hmm. uh, but they were just having a moment of sort of a faith crisis, which yep. reminds me of the, the sort of the prayer of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, you yes. know, that, that uh, everybody deals with. There's this um, uh, relationship between faith and doubt that is healthy, yep. uh, but can become unhealthy when we, um, you know, sort of, I, I guess, if you will, I think a lot of times look at our own abilities and our own strengths as opposed to God's goodness, God's love, God's mercy, and, and the other things that we should be able to rest in, knowing that even when I don't feel a certain way or you know feel his presence at a certain time, that it doesn't mean that it's not there. Right. I mean, you see it in the psalmists. I mean, they're wrestling with this stuff all yes. the time, and they're always coming back to God and his faithfulness and his promises, and they're clinging to him, and I think that's... Yeah, and that, mm -hmm. that's that's the beauty of the Christian faith, right? We, it's not about us. It's about the one who has made us and rescued us. That's right. Well, um, let me ask you another question. Uh, so I think there are some big distinctives uh, in the Presbyterian denomination. I think they're important. They're good, mm. uh, such as you know baptism, Lord's Supper, um, some reformed ideas on uh, just the nature of salvation and grace and whatnot. Um, what are some of the social issues that the Presbyterian Church of America tends to focus on uh, as far as, you know, what they do for communities or how they're involved in the world around them? Wow. Uh, well, you know, I think that that's a great question. And I, I would say, at least from my experience, it really is it depends on the church. Um, we, especially in the in the Presbyterian Church in America, we are connectional in the sense that we, like I was saying earlier, you know, we have 
we have leadership that is connected with the leadership of the churches in their region, and then those that region is connected to other regions nationally. But there's a lot of, in a lot of respects, we're very congregational in some of the ways in which we express that. And so, and I think rightfully, I mean, that can, that can, mm -hmm. that can introduce a whole host of problems. But I do think one of the nice things about that is it allows each congregation to focus on the things that need to be focused on in its own context. So there's no yeah. sort of top-down these are the issues you have to pursue and these are the issues you have to emphasize. So it's going to be different for mm -hmm. every church. Um, I've been in or know of churches that have been very much um, engaged in racial reconciliation and engaged in serving local impoverished communities and doing what they can to come alongside those communities and the community leaders and to um, pursue flourishing in that context to whatever extent they can. Um, and not in some sort of like, we're going to impose this upon you, but we're going to work with you. Um, I mean, there's a church in Oklahoma City that does this, uh, um, City Prez in Oklahoma City does this just mm -hmm. beautifully. Um, and they've started their own kind of offshoot 501c3 that does a lot of work in that community with the community leaders that already exist. Um, and then, you know, there are churches that are engaged in life issues. Um, I've been part of churches that partnered with um, various crisis pregnancy centers that um, not only helped um, women who were in the midst of crisis pregnancy, but really tried to help uh, minister to the dads that were hoping to be um, part of and participate in that process. Uh, and there have been ways in which they've tried to kind of minister to the families in mm -hmm. various circumstances and with various motivations for the decisions that they're making. Um, so that's, you know, those are probably two really big ones that a lot of churches are engaged in. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I know a lot of churches that are going in and just um, doing ESL and helping um, folks from other parts of the world learn English as a second language. Um, and they're just trying to be a faithful presence there to give kind of, you know, meet practical needs. Mm -hmm. But in doing that, trying to be the faithful presence of God's love in their community. Yeah. One of the things I teach my students a lot is that, you know, we're called to share God's kingdom with the world around us. And uh, when I talk about God's kingdom, I typically am referring to the things that come when you put yourself under the authority of God, which include, you know, his, uh, you know, all the things are, you know, his blessings, his goodness and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, doing something like ESL is a way of sharing God's kingdom with the world, mm -hmm. giving them a glimpse of how things should be uh, and how the church treats and acts and uh, uh, interacts with others outside the church. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I like what you're saying here. I think it's a important to recognize that based on what you mentioned about church government and then this, that um, every church isn't completely autonomous. They don't get to do all what they want. You know, you can't have this one Presbyterian church over here sort of going off the rails and, and doing their own thing. But at the same time, they have enough freedom to say, you know what, here are the needs in our community. Yeah. So here's what we're going to do. And uh, that gives them sort of this community uh, or this freedom with accountability. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, there's accountability and there's resources um, and you can learn from each other and you can benefit from each other. And denominationally, there's uh, lots of financial resources, but it's just recognizing the fact that a church in 
rural um, Montana is not going to have the same issues to address as a church in urban New York City. Sure. Like it's going to just look different. And so this is where it, it really is kind of a good um, way of understanding kind of missiology and what does it look like to be missionaries mm -hmm. in our context um, and not just kind of think, well, we've got to do whatever the cool guys are doing, uh, you know, in yeah. the Northeast or whatever. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so every denomination has their strengths. Every denomination has their weaknesses. <laughs> uh, what are some of the, I guess, if you will, sort of red flag things or things that you think, you know, here's some stuff the Presbyterian Church could maybe do a little bit better at or work on a little bit. You know, what are some things that if someone was looking at the Presbyterian denomination, you might say, yeah, here's some things that they, you know, they might be, want to be cautious about. <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Baptist list is, you know, yeah, it's, it's pretty long. The list is pretty long and <laughs> distinguished as well. Um, you know, I think the... There's been move. There have been good movements on on some of these things. The, 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 there's probably a few that come to my my mind. One, I think it's important to recognize that, um, not unlike other uh, denominations within the the U.S., we had the, the Presbyterian Church in America particularly has Southern roots, and mm -hmm. so there is. Um, a history, and, and in some respects, it's not just a deep history, but it's unfortunately even a somewhat recent history of, of racism mm -hmm. um, and racial discrimination and opposition to um, not only emancipation, but um, opposition to the civil rights movement and so on and so forth. And that's not, mm -hmm. not, that's not to say every church or every individual um, bought into all of that. And some of it's just, it was... It was the cultural air that we were breathing, and mm -hmm. so it's there. And I think it's important to not deny it, to not minimize it, to not um, try to redirect. But it's important to just own it. And we've mm -hmm. done that to some extent. I think we can always continue to re-examine ourselves, um, and and you know, being covenantal, understanding that we have a connection with all Christians that have gone before us, all the way back even to. Israel, you know, there's a sense in which we have to own the, the sins of our, our forefathers. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we've done that a few years ago. Denominationally, we, we confessed um, our sin, our corporate sin, and we've sought to repent of our corporate sin. We've done things to um, better understand not only what we've done in the past, but um, how that continues to play itself out in the present. Um, within our churches, uh, within our leadership, and and even just kind of how it affects our witness within um, the communities that we're serving and the world around us. And obviously there's, um, it, that muddies the water in some respects because, you know, some of the churches in the North didn't have quite the same sort of history as the churches in the South. So there was a lot of back and forth and debate about why should we have to own this when it's use you guys, but it's <laughs> sure uh, again, you know, sometimes guilt by association is a real thing. And so mm -hmm. uh, those are, you know, red flags in the sense of just like, I think it's important to not pretend like it's not there. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't lead with that unless there's a, unless there's a pastoral reason to just let a person 
know that that is part of our history and it's a sad part and unfortunately not everybody wants to own it to the same degree yeah um but uh you know it's the church is like a family in some respects you don't always get to pick your siblings <laughs> and you don't always get to pick the the differences that come up around the or shouldn't come up around the thanksgiving table as it were yeah. um so that that would be one issue um we you know, there are other things that we are dealing with when it comes to uh, just understanding abuse and what it means to minister to those in crisis, what it means to minister to those who are vulnerable for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think even that, you know, that's forcing us to kind of wrestle with and think through how do we understand um, male leadership uh, in a way that is not demeaning of of men that aren't called to that that office or that ministry, and even to women that are not called to that. And I think it, these are good things for us to be wrestling with, and we're being forced to really start to ask ourselves some good questions about uh, what does it mean for the church to function as a body that is male and female, where men and women, not only in their marriages, but in the life of the church and in their discipleship to Jesus, our, our co-laborers, our allies, our partners are um, united to each other in, in Jesus. And I think those are all really good questions for us to be asking and wrestling with. And I have my convictions and there are those that agree with me and those that disagree with me. Mm -hmm. um, I think what, it, what that's exposing um, whether it's kind of practical brass tacks theology of ordination and ministry, uh, our understanding of maleness and femaleness in Jesus, uh, or even just kind of how do we pastor those who are in crisis and those who are vulnerable, all of that is exposing, I think, the ways in which so often we confuse our cultural heritage and preferences with biblical exegetical theology and we think mm -hmm. that we think that um the theology is settled and i think a lot of times the theology is settled but we confuse our cultural applications of it as the settled theology and we forget right. that no this stuff has always got to be kind of thought through and examined and applied appropriately. So the way these things were applied in the ancient Near East or the way they were applied in the Greco-Roman world or the way they were applied in the 1850s or the 1950s is not going to be exactly the same as 2022, mm -hmm. um, soon to be 23. So uh, yeah. I, think, I think for me, that's actually probably one of the biggest issues is just kind of being able to separate theology from cultural um, preference. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, on our podcast and, you know, on my blog and everything, we've talked for years about how we don't really agree with cancel culture because you would end up canceling everybody at some point. Uh, it sort of reminds me of the early church where they would have these councils and someone would get, ex, you know, excommunicated. And then uh, the person who's the hero at one council then gets excommunicated the next council <laughs> for something else. And a lot of times they're let back in, you know, but yeah. um, it, the, the whole thing is, is that everybody's getting in trouble at some point. And uh, 
in our world, you know, if you look at stuff that I believe 20 years ago, uh, some of the things I believed in, I still believe now. Mm -hmm. But some of the things I don't. And I think that the goal of everyone should be to grow and to learn and to adapt and to make adjustments to be, uh, in, in the Christian vein of things, more like Christ or a better representative of Christ over time. Yeah. And so that's sort of what, you know, at least that's kind of what I hear you saying with a lot of these cultural issues that it's, hey, you know, we thought this was settled because, you know, I mean, everybody believes the way that they've done things is the right way to do it. Uh, you know, missionaries used to try to make the cultures they went to be more <laughs> like the country they came from. Yep. And it was like, no, 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 you're confusing your traditions with the gospel. You've got to stop that. You've got to figure yep. out how to make the gospel relevant in their culture. Uh, but the reason we do that, though, is because we just, it's what we know, it's what we're familiar with. So we think that must be the right way to do it. Yeah. And I think it's, it, it, it's an it should be an incarnational impulse to recognize that if God is redeeming a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue from throughout the history of, of the world, from creation to second coming, uh, the, the gospel is relevant for all of those people, for all of those culturals, cultures at all of those times, but the way it's expressed is gonna look different and the way it come you know the things that it has to the the idols that it has to tear down um are going to be different the things that it kind of clings to that are good things within that culture to kind of affirm are going to be different for each culture and so we can't assume you know in the same way we can't assume um, our theology is going to be expressed exactly the same now as it was in 1940 five we can't expect it to you know we can't expect presbyterianism to look exactly the same in um south korea or mm -hmm. in the sudan or wherever it might be it's going to look different because it's a different it's a different area and it's right. different people with different traditions and different things that the gospel has to come in and impact um and i think that's where we just it's not a it's not a you know people will probably accuse me of being relativist it's not about being relativist. The, the truth is the truth, and it's always been the truth. But the truth is not always going to look exactly the same in, in the way it's expressed. That's right. Um, you know, yeah, I, I've tried to yeah. come up with a metaphor, but I'd probably end up messing it up. Uh, so. it's, yeah, it's all good. I always <laughs> like, uh, you know, a lot of scripture is written with agrarian language because most of the mm -hmm. people were farmers. Yeah. And so, especially like you look at Song of Songs, right? And uh, so the author of Song of Songs says something to the effect of your teeth are like the sheep walking in a line, none's, you know, they're, you know, all in their space. And um, you're like, what in the world is he saying? And he's like, he's talking about, you know, oh, you know, the woman I love has a beautiful set of teeth and they're all there. Yeah. You know, and, and you're like, I mean, it, it makes sense in his society. You know, yep. it's, it's a great thing. But if I was to tell my wife, hey, your, your teeth remind me of the sheep in the field it would not go over well here in America, right? Right. Yeah, so, you've got to come up with a different um, way to say that. So it's sort of kind of along those lines. You know, you go to a different culture and you say, okay, you know, the gospel cult, the gospel message, what Christ did, who Christ is, who God is, his nature, his character, it's the same yep. no matter what culture you go to. Yep. But when you get there, you have to figure out how do I now present this and teach this in a way that makes sense to the people here based on, everything around them in their world. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, it, and this shouldn't be controversial because we see it in Scripture itself. 
Right. I mean, there's a difference between how John writes the gospel to a predominantly Gentile audience mm -hmm. and the way Matthew writes the gospel to a predominantly Jewish audience. And so, obviously, you have to adapt the message in its the way you communicate it um, and apply it to different cultures. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where we have to just wrestle with that. And, uh, you know, the language of Semper Reformanda, always reforming, does not mean that the gospel is changing. It just means that the circumstances around us are, mm -hmm. and we have to adapt to that. And I think for us, and this is this goes back to your original question here, I think a big part of the issue for Presbyterians particularly and probably for other um, other denominations and traditions, the more um, traditional and orthodox we are um, when it comes to a whole host of issues, I, I think we are having to really wrestle with what it means to minister and live out the Christian faith in a post-Christian culture. Mm -hmm. it, the, the Christian faith is no longer the assumed narrative by everybody. You know, in 1950, everybody assumed it, even if they didn't believe it, and they kind of were willing to implicitly play by those rules. Right. That's not the case anymore. And the good thing there is, is it's there's less cultural Christianity. The challenge is that means we are all having to ask questions of the text and of the faith that most of us have never had to ask before. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we're going to come up with the right answers um, that are consistent with the Christian faith. But we have to have the humility to recognize that the right answers may not always look the same. Yeah, and I'm kind of beating a dead horse, but I think that's just part of, that's part of the moment that we're living in as we transition from a Christian culture to a post-Christian culture, not meaning that, you know, ethics and, and all and morality has changed but the the cultural assumptions have shifted mm -hmm. and you know you talked about the good of doubt earlier um and the role that can play well all of us and all of our children and grandchildren are going to have to lean into doubt much more than they've ever had to because unlike years past decades past you know someone that didn't believe had to defend their unbelief. Right. We now have to defend, even to ourselves and in our own imaginations, we have to defend our own belief because it's not as easy to believe as it once was because there's so many different cultural narratives calling into question this idea of the transcendent mm -hmm. um, and the divine and this meta-narrative that defines all of life and all of truth. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, especially on social media, that's that's certainly the case, uh, because you have lots of people who have allowed the doubt to uh, take root in such a way that they've walked away from the faith. And a lot of times, the walking away has to do with um, abuses or things that they've seen Christians say or do that don't line up with what the gospel is about. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, you know, then they they walk away and say, "Now I'm free from all of this." previous assumption on how we needed to live in culture. And so you're, you're absolutely right. You know, in this post-Christian era uh, here in America, and, and, you know, I'm in the Bible Belt, we're in the Bible Belt. Mm -hmm. 
it's changing and shifting here. Mm -hmm. uh, not this isn't just something happening, you know, in the New York and L.A. Right. right? You know, the, the places that you know the conservative Christians are going to say, oh, those are just the liberal cesspools or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's happening everywhere, and we do have to we have to come to reality and come to grips with the reality of that, and say, you know, how do I continue to believe? in a culture that now questions the basis and the foundations of those beliefs. Yeah. So, yeah, very absolutely. good. Well, uh, Dave, it has been so good to have you today hmm. and uh, to talk about the Presbyterian Church of America and uh, to talk about its history, some of its distinctive defining characteristics. Uh, for those of you guys at home, thanks for watching and listening. And uh, we'll see you again next time on the Faith and Culture Now podcast. Thanks, Scott. Thank you.